Okay, I'm Chris Avina, and welcome to another edition of American Outdoor News. Today's guest uh, is uh, the recipient of two Grammy Awards, four CMAs, seven multi-platinum albums, and he's charted more than 40 times. Will you please welcome Mr. Travis Schritt? Travis, How you doing this you morning? For taking the time. It's a pleasure to it's see really you. It's really my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now, um, you're currently touring. You came out with a new album, first time in a while, right? Yeah. We, um, we released uh, a new album back earlier in the summer. It's the first studio album that I've done in about 14 years. It's called Set in Stone. And um, that all came about basically through my, my manager. My manager and I started working together about two and a half years ago. And one of the first things that he said to me when we started working together is like, you know, you've had a great career and um, you've had a lot of success. But he said, I still think that you've got a lot of great music left in you. I think you've got songs that you can write. I think you've still got something to say. And he said, I would love to see you go in the studio and do uh, a new album just if not only to feed your loyal fans, but also to draw in possibly newer people uh, that are not as familiar with your catalog. So I thought that was a great idea. And then we got hooked up with a guy by the name of Dave Cobb, who produced the album. He produces all of the albums on people like Chris Stapleton, on people like Sturgill Simpson, um, just the list goes on and on. And, uh, he was just absolutely wonderful to work with. And after being out of the studio, I was a little bit hesitant about going back in because I know things have changed a lot mm -hmm. in the last 14 years with how the people record music and, and how music is, is produced. But he basically put my mind at ease very quickly. He said, you know, here's the way I do it. I take a full band in. We all are sitting in the same room when we record and, Everything is played live, and I want you to record as many of your live vocals as possible while we're laying the tracks down. Well, that was perfect for me because that's the way I've always done it. Ever since I started recording back in the late 80s, that's the way I've always done it. So it was really a, a refreshing thing to hear, and I could not be more pleased with that whole process. It was just an absolute joy to do this album. Well, I mean, your your catalog is endless. It's classic. Well, uh, oh, thank you're, you. You're a, a, a bona fide rock star. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Now, it's funny. I had Ted Nugent uh, in here for my last cover, covering the rock and roll section. You're covering the country section. This is really a, a, an honor for me. I appreciate it. Truly my pleasure. So... You have been, uh, did you grow, you were in Georgia. I mean, did you grow up yeah. in the outdoors? Uh, were you an outdoor family? We, uh, my dad, um, he didn't hunt as much as some of my uncles and uh, my grandfather did, but he, he hunted occasionally. Uh, he liked to hunt, uh, you know, things like rabbits and squirrels and stuff like that and uh -huh. he enjoyed that he enjoyed the outdoors though all my young life i mean he enjoyed 
just being outdoors and and he encouraged uh, me and my entire family to to do things outdoors as well and um, my first though experience with um, a real hunt uh, what I would refer to as a real hunt was when I was about um, 12 years old and my uncle took me uh, deer hunting for the very first time, uh, he and my cousin. And back in those days, it was a lot different than it is now. Back in those days. That's a fact. <laughs> first of all, first of all, in Georgia, you could walk 50 yards into any woods and you would hear the sound of quail. You would stir up a covey of wild quail. Meanwhile, if you so much as saw not a deer, but a deer track, you went back and told everybody in town because there, there weren't many deer around this area back then. And it's funny because to me, uh, because now, you know, almost 50 years later, it's exactly the opposite of that. Um, we've had so many predators that have been brought in that uh, wild quail are practically non-existent in this part of the world. Yeah. Um, but deer are everywhere. And back in those days too, um, there was no such thing as uh, leased land to hunt on. Mm -hmm. uh, you basically, there were several um, uh, reserves or preserves that were public land that you could hunt deer on in Georgia. And that was, um, that was obviously, uh, it came to be uh, kind of a, a dangerous situation in some cases because you never knew exactly who was in the woods with you. So um, uh, once, once we started um, seeing more deer and also uh, having more leased land, come available to us where you could go in and go on a lease with um, a small group of hunters, all people that you knew mm -hmm. and that you trusted in the woods. Um, that became really uh, kind of an eye-opening experience for me as far as deer hunting was concerned because it changed the whole face of it and it made it a lot more enjoyable. Um, plus back in those days too, uh, there was no such thing as uh, pre-built deer stands, you know. Most of the stands that we used back in the day were those old climbing stands, you know, that that I've nearly fallen out of, I don't know how many trees over the Yeah, years. those climbers scare the hell out of me. I like Oh, man, <laughs> absolutely. And plus, I've frozen my ass off, you know, on numerous deer stands, so... There, there came a point, probably about, um, probably about twenty, twenty-five years ago, where I just basically just um, lost interest in deer hunting at that particular time. And I, I of course, I, I loved anything outdoors, hunting, fishing, any of that kind of stuff. I still wanted to do it, but I just wanted to find something that was a little bit more. Um, something that I enjoyed a little bit more. And I was introduced by my father-in-law 
to upland bird hunting, um, quail. Uh, he ran a, actually ran a, a quail plantation down in uh, central Florida for years. And he invited me to come along and, and, and go on quail hunts with him and, and my brothers-in-law. And man, it was just like, I enjoyed it. Everything about it. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the, the hunting, but more than anything else, I loved watching really good trained dogs work in the field. Yes. That was just a thrill for me. That's and it still life. is, still is. Absolutely. So, um, I got started with that. And then later on, I started, uh, Hank Williams Jr. actually took me on my first turkey hunt uh, many years ago. And I was hooked immediately on that. Loved a turkey hunt. Yeah. Uh, shortly thereafter, a uh, good friend of mine um, who was an avid hunter took me on my first uh, duck hunt up in uh, Missouri. Uh, very close to the Mississippi River. And I was hooked on that as well. Went on pheasant hunts with him as well in South Dakota for every single year for uh, probably the last, um, the last 10 or 12 years. I've been in South Dakota for opening day of, of pheasant season. Uh, it's just uh, something that I really, really enjoy. So all of those different types of hunting. And of course I do wild boar hunting and, and I had the privilege uh, a few years ago to, uh, to go to South Africa and, and hunt plains game there That's with exciting. my wife. Yeah. My wife was actually born in Nairobi and, oh, wow. uh, yeah, her father was, uh, ex green beret. And when he left, uh, the armed forces after Vietnam, he and uh, my wife's uncle, they moved to Africa to pour concrete for all of the runways, for all of the airports in all over South Africa. Wow. Um, Botswana, Nairobi, um, everywhere that you can think of uh, across the continent of Africa. And then they would pour during the week, they would pour concrete. And then on weekends, most of the people that were working with them um, were also skinners, trackers. Sure. Uh, so they would take all of them out on the weekend and they would go on safari for the weekend. And every time that I would get around my, my wife and I've been married for uh, about 20, almost 25 years. And every time I would get around her father or her uncle at Christmas time or, you know, around the holidays, they would talk about those experiences in Africa and how they would like to go back one more time before they died. So in 2006, uh, my wife and I put together a trip uh, that included she and I and her uncle and her father. And we went over to Africa and stayed for about two weeks and just had a wonderful, wonderful time hunting. Africa is like a sportsman's paradise. You know? It really is. It was just absolutely wonderful. I saw you took uh, a gorgeous uh, sable there. I did. I did. As that a matter is... of fact, that, that particular hunt, uh, 
just one guy that was a, a uh, who was a dear friend of mine. He he and I were the only two that wanted to go after a sable, so we had to leave the rest of our party behind, and we had to travel uh, as far north as you could go and still be in South Africa. We were right up on the on the edge of the oh, Sahari Desert, and oh, wow. and uh, we were less than a uh, hundred miles from where John Wayne filmed Hatari back in the, wow. in the, in the sixties or, uh, so it was just all around, man, that some of the greatest memories that I have in my life, uh, was, was being on that hunt. That was just absolute blast for me. I, I think every hunter should experience hunting Africa at least one time in their life. It's an amazing experience. It is. Now, even the big game hunts, um, there's this perception of, uh, hunting elephant where, you know, uh, in the anti-hunters and whatnot. It's not the hunters, it's the poachers. It's the poachers, absolutely. That's the biggest threat. I mean, obviously, in any in any economy, um, the amount of money that hunters put into the economy to go over there and, and be able to hunt these animals, and also the fact that they are very limited on the amount of animals that they are able to harvest. Mm -hmm. uh, it's done in a very uh, conservative way. And so the biggest threat is not from the, the, the hunters, the hunting society. The biggest threat is from poachers because poachers come in and they don't care. They don't have a limit on how many animals they kill. No, they're not worried about a license. They're just coming in and killing and Absolutely. taking the tusks. And, you know, Absolutely. It, it's funny because people don't realize that um, one elephant will feed hundreds of people. Absolutely. They, when there's a confirmed kill, they come from everywhere. They put oh, thing down to nothing. There's just a blood spot on the floor. They take the bones and all. Absolutely. And they, they, they pretty much do that with, with every, I mean, all the planes game that we killed, which was fabulous meat. Yeah. Um, we ate it every night while we were there, but uh, everything that, that we took in, there was a large portion of that, that we just donated to the local um, folks there. Um, and once again, they were extremely appreciative because they um that that is a very poor continent yeah and uh these people they really appreciated not only the the financial uh assistance that uh hunting provides for them but also the uh the meat that it provides it feeds the a lot of nutrition and sustenance that's 100 percent. you know what 100%. bothered me um about a year or so ago i saw them burning uh, they confiscated a large amount of uh, ivory and they burned thousands of pounds of elephant ivory. Why not put Such that out to the marketplace, flood the marketplace with what they confiscated, bring the pricing way down so the demand uh, you know, is satisfied and that'll take care of the poaching. It just seems like a huge waste to me. I mean, for, for any animals to be 
I've always believed in 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 eating what I kill. I agree. And uh, I've always believed in um, trying to do everything in my power to make sure that not only that we're able to go in and pay for our licenses and pay for all the different things to to help the uh, build up the um, uh, environment for these animals to thrive in, but also to give us an opportunity to uh, teach people about the conservation of mm -hmm. the land, so that so that these animals can thrive, and that there will be hunting for generations to come. I mean, that is primarily every I think every hunter that I've ever met. Uh, that's primarily their their take on things. And mm -hmm. um, they're some of the best environmentalists, I think, in the world because they are extremely, they love the land. They love the, um, the experience of teaching their, their children and their grandchildren how to go out and hunt and fish. But also they realize that in order for that to continue on, that we have to really be stewards of the land and we really have to be um, careful uh, with how we make sure that these animals are going to thrive, that there's going to be plenty of them. Uh, we, we are all very, very conscious of that. And I, I think that's one of the things that's probably the most misunderstood about hunters in general. Well, that's the, you know, part of the Pittman-Robertson Act, the that's mm -hmm. a self-imposed tax. Sure. Uh, every gun, every license, every round of ammunition, there's a self-imposed tax that goes directly towards conservation. 100%. And that's one of the reasons why I have never begrudged a single dollar that I have spent for a hunting license in my entire life because I know where that money is going. Sure. And it's going back into um, the environment. It's going back into uh, conservation. It's going back into making sure that we are protecting the land and taking care of the land so that we can pass this wonderful experience of hunting down to our, our kids and our grandchildren uh, for generations to come. So at what age did you uh, introduce your kids to the uh, outdoors and hunting? From the very beginning. We live on a I live on a 75-acre farm in Georgia, and I bought it in 1992. And my wife and I met in uh, in 1995, and so we started having our first uh, our first child was born in uh, in 1997, and uh, we uh, I wanted to make sure that all of the things that I loved that I could do on my own property without ever having to leave. So I had a, when I first bought the property, there was a small little pond about, about maybe, I don't know, an acre and a half. It was about six inches deep. It was full of water moccasins and, and turtles. <laughs> and uh, so we came in and we dredged it out and we stocked it and we made it bigger. We made it about three and a half acres. And we stocked it with uh, largemouth bass, channel catfish, and wow. bluegill. And so anytime I wanted to, I could go out and start 
you know, cast a line and go fishing. And uh, I basically started teaching my children, all three of them, um, how to do that and, and teaching them a love for that um, from the time they were just toddlers. And they've all grown up um, enjoying that. They've enjoyed, um, you know, going out and we'll do uh, clay shooting, you know, in our back pasture. That's always fun. Um, it's always great. But getting them uh, uh, to love the land and to love the outdoors as much as I do and, in and, and also the love for all shooting sports, all hunting, all fishing, um, all those different things. So they've all been taught that um, from a very, very early age. And it wasn't just me. I mean, my wife, obviously, growing up as uh, her her father being a an avid hunter, avid fisherman. Uh, so she grew up in, in that same type of environment. All her family did as well. Does she hunt so, as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she went with me. As a matter of fact, I, I hate to even talk about it because I think she might be a better shot than me. <laughs> when we went to Africa together, she was she was unbelievable. Just in fantastic, fantastic shots. So, you know, I think inherently women are better shots yeah. uh, because they have more focus than we do. I think uh, so. They're more teachable. They'll sit and listen yes. to instructions. Guys have egos. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. Uh, you, you, exactly. I can't learn anything from you. I already know how to shoot. Well, you know, exactly. I've been hunting with a lot of women and they outshot me and I'm not embarrassed to admit it. <laughs> no, me, ab absolutely. Uh, me either. Uh, you know, the fact is, is that uh, us guys have a, have a serious problem sometimes taking instructions. That's why we tear the instructions up on anything we're trying to put together, you know, <laughs> whether it be a new outdoor grill or, or yep. whatever it may be. <laughs> That's you know, it's like, oh, no, don't we don't worry need, about it. don't need Thanks these instructions, <laughs> man. Throw those away. I got this. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> fact. True. <laughs> That's a fact. Now, um, do you train your own dogs or do you just use the outfitter's dogs? We use the outfitter's dogs. Um, my, um, my oldest son um, uh, got a... Uh, chocolate lab puppy about three years ago and he has been uh doing a little bit of of training with that dog uh, my youngest son who's about to be 18 next month wow. um has a um a bird dog that he um has worked with uh a little bit but most of the time when we go on these quail hunts uh, they have such fantastic dogs at most of these uh, plantations where we hunt uh, that we just use those dogs and, and uh, they yeah. are absolutely wonderful to watch. It's a lot of work training. It really is. Dog. It takes a lot it of really time is. and a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So basically for you, if it's flying, it's dying. That, well, yeah, that's, that's pretty <laughs> much the way it goes, you know, and, and we, like I said, we love, I mean, all of my children, man, you know, bacon wrapped quail uh, done on a smoker is probably one of the things that they love the most. Uh, they love, obviously, 
pheasant. They eat all kinds of wild game. They love it. Uh, deer, they love uh, venison. Bacon uh, makes everything taste better. Absolutely. You yeah, man, you can wrap shoe leather leather in bacon and it, it would taste good, you know? Well, we have a cooking but, section in the magazine. So if you uh, you or your boys want to send over a recipe, I'll be uh, absolutely to, uh, use that as well. You bet. Absolutely. I'd be glad to do that. Now, I'm going to throw a date out to you and let me know what that date means to you. Uh, August 14th, 1875. August 14th, 1875. Has to do with something you owned. August 14th, 1875. Man, I'm stumped. <laughs> you owned a hunting cabin uh, that you sold um, and it was haunted. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't 1875. Oh, no? No. Well, no, that hunting cabin. Faulty. No, that cab, yeah, that cabin was actually, it was up in North Georgia on, uh, on a lake up there. And it was about, um, it was about eight years old when I bought it. Um, it was, and it wasn't a hunting cabin. It was a, it was just, a like a, uh, uh, basically a recreational cabin. Uh, this particular lake, uh, up in North Georgia, most of the people that go up there, they have um, like second homes all around the lake. It's not a huge lake, but it's it's got about, you know, 300 something miles of shoreline. And most of the people that go up there um, that have those houses or, or cabins or log homes or whatever around the lake, they just use those primarily for recreation during the summertime. So, yeah, but it, it was definitely haunted definitely haunted and uh uh i was one of those that really didn't believe in that sort of thing uh too much but it, that particular cabin made a a believer out of me, out of me. <laughs> you know um, my my cousin bought a plantation in alabama uh-huh and same thing he swears it's haunted he's had a median on the property and um it turns out uh, that one of the uh, ghosts, I guess you call them, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a former slave from mm -hmm. the plantation and uh, uh, a young girl who was um, who lived on the plantation. So he, yeah, he would tell me some amazing stories. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, it's, <laughs> I it's, don't know if I want to live there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just. And, you know, I, I've had people that have asked me, because uh, I saw that that uh, log home a few years ago, and they asked me, well, did you sell it because of, of the haunting? And actually, no, um, because for the last few years, just prior to selling it, um, the paranormal activity had had really almost stopped completely but it was one of those things where i stay on the road so much and so busy and it, and obviously the summer months are the busiest time for me so we were basically finding out that i was only 
available to go up there like, you know, four or five days a year. Wow, so it wasn't lot. something that we didn't get a chance to use very often, you know. So um, so we ended up letting it go. But, you know, the more that's been several years ago and the more time that I spend um, without having that place up there, because the lake is just absolutely beautiful, yeah. uh, the more I'm thinking that maybe someday, who knows, maybe someday I may buy another place up there. Well, it's it's always more relaxing. There's something uh, something about the tranquility of uh, being out in the in the uh, woods or on the one hundred percent. I just lost yes. my place. Um, we had a club up in uh, New York. Uh, we leased six hundred acres on a nice big lake, sixty acre lake. Uh, the owner just sold the property. We were there twenty years. So oh, we, wow. Sold it for two million, and yeah, uh, yeah, we weren't going to come up with two million dollars to buy the property. Yeah, I don't even exactly. want to stay in New York anymore. <laughs> exactly, I understand. I understand completely. But um, I, I have a, a gun question for you. Sure. Uh, what does the Second Amendment mean to you? The Second Amendment means, first of all, that we are able to own the guns uh, that we use for all of the hunting that we do. And uh, above and beyond that, I think everybody should have the, the God-given right to be able to protect themselves, defend themselves against um, any kind of intruder or anyone that would, that would, be a threat, possibly do harm to you or your family, mm -hmm. and also um, against tyranny. Um, I mean, that was, I look at what's going on in Australia right now, and I, I seriously doubt that any of the um, experiences that they're having there with the government basically just overreaching and all these government um, draconian rules of basically keeping people locked up in their houses and and people don't have the opportunity to fight back anymore because years ago they gave up their guns in Australia and I think yeah. that's one of the biggest reasons why they're seeing um, their country being overrun and they're they're defenseless against that. The, yeah. the general public is defenseless against that. So the Second Amendment was um, was put in place, obviously, um, to protect people against uh, tyrannical government and give them the opportunity to be able to fight back. And that's how this country was founded. And it's, once again, it's something that we absolutely have to preserve uh, in order to protect our freedom and our way of life and our families. Well, uh, this administration is coming after our Second Amendment right pretty hard. But in my opinion, Joe Biden forfeited that right when he equipped the Taliban with uh, over 600,000 small arms, armored vehicles, Black Hawk helicopters, planes. He, he basically 
fully equip their army. So he, to me, he forfeited that right to try and question our right to bear arms. Well, think about this. The, the, this administration has basically said by their actions that it's okay for the Taliban to have all of these armored vehicles and all of these guns and, and all these different things, but your local police departments can't have them. Yep. And that is absolutely completely backwards. Um, it's, 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 I just don't understand the mentality behind it. But once again, if, if we're going to continue to have a country, uh, the United States has got to preserve our freedoms, all the freedoms that were not given to us by government, but they were given to us by God. Yep. And they are, they are documented in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And um, so, once again, we have, to, we have to stand strong and we have to fight back any kind of tyranny that would take those rights and, and those freedoms away from us. 100%. Well, in closing, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for bringing the Eagles back together. <laughs> Man, Can you tell you know, me a little bit about that? I've had a lot of people that have tried to give me credit for that, and I've never really taken credit for it simply because of the fact that the way that came about um, in the mid-90s, um, the one of the record labels came up with the idea of doing a tribute album to the Eagles, and they wanted all of the current uh, hit makers in country music to each do an, a cover of an Eagles song. And I think I was one of the last ones that was invited in because um, when I started being asked, well, what song do you want to do? Well, I'd like to do Desperado. Well, no, Clint Black's already doing that one. Or I'd like to do this song. Well, no, somebody else is already doing that. So I was kind of running out of options. And my, my attorney at the time suggested to me that I do Take It Easy um, because that was their first number one hit for the Eagles. And so I, I said, is that song taken? And they said, no, it's not taken. And I said, well, great. So I, I went and recorded it. And then a few months later, they sent me the entire album. And I sat and listened to it and just thought, man, everybody's performance on this album was just so great. And the thing that was special to me about it was the fact that the Eagles had become the soundtrack of my life. When I, the first time I did a lot of things in my life, the first time I ever drove my father's car without him being with me, the first time that I ever went on a date, first time I ever kissed a girl, there was Eagles music playing in the background. And so it became literally like the soundtrack of my life. And so um, after we completed the album, I get a call one day from um, the Eagles management office. And they said, hey, we're going to do, uh, we want your single to be the first single off of this album. 
And I was honored. I was shocked. Wow. You know, I was like, man, there's so many great performances. And they said, we want you to be the first. And to promote it, we want you to do a video. And I was like, man, that's, that's, that's going to have to be a heck of a video to be, to stand up to how good this album really is. And they said, well, what do you have in mind? And I'm, I'm just off the top of my head. I said something like, I don't know, maybe we should get the Eagles back together. And I just kind of laughed and there was dead silence on the other end of the phone. And then a, a few days after that, um, apparently somebody took me seriously because they called back from the, the manager called back and said, look, I'm going to give you Don Henley's phone number and I'm going to give you Glenn Fry's phone number. And if you can get them to agree to be a part of this video, then we'll do it. And so we did. We called both of them and both of them said the same thing. They said, well, if, if the other one does it, I'll do it. And so we knew that once we had Don and Glenn, that the rest of the Eagles would probably come in as well. And they all did. And so we ended up just, just shooting that video in a little um, cantina restaurant in Los Angeles uh, in December of that year. And at the end of the video, um, they said they had a little bandstand set up over in the corner and they had all the amps and a drum kit and everything. They said, we just want you guys to, to just act like you're playing along with the song. So I pick up a guitar and plug in all the guys plugged in their, their instruments. Don sat behind the drum kit and I just start playing the beginning of Rocky Mountain Way. Bump to bump to bump, bump, bump. Great song. And the band joined in and I'm sharing a microphone. I'm this close to Joe Walsh singing Rocky Mountain Way. And that was the first song that the Eagles had played together in over like 14, 15 years. And I got to be an Eagle for a day. So That's it was just, it was just for me, it was, it was one of those things that I think just kind of happened by accident, but you know, everything happens for a reason. And the timing of that was just perfect. So I don't take a lot of credit for getting them back together. I was just glad to be a part of it and glad to be uh, involved in. And of course that was kind of the beginning of uh, the hell freezes over tour. One of which, my favorite uh, albums. Took place, I saw that time. Uh, yeah, another year later. So, yeah, it was it was a great experience for me, and uh, and um, you know, I managed to uh, maintain a, a really good friendship with both uh, Glenn Fry right up until he passed away, and also with Don Henley as well. So, I'm just honored that I had that opportunity to work with those guys because they meant so much to me musically. Awesome. They they had a huge impact on everybody's life because, like you, we're the same age. Um, it was always on the radio. They were always around. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And every song they did was just fabulous. And their 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 music spanned all different genres. I mean, there was a lot of the early stuff that had a very country 
um, uh, influence. And, uh, of course, you know, I think one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life was the Hotel California album. It's still one of my all-time favorites. That's That was gold. Well, yes, technically, but <laughs> yes, it was gold. yes. But uh, all right, I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. And um, if uh, where can we find your new album? Oh, um, it's it's available pretty much everywhere. Um, all the streaming services are carrying it. Uh, Apple Music, uh, uh, Pandora, um, all Spotify, all of those. Uh, uh, you can find the album there. It's called Set in Stone. Um, and also like Walmarts, Amazon, all those different people that carry it as well. We are just now um, coming out with uh, vinyl. We're going to do a limited edition uh, vinyl on the album. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And also you can find the album and, and also you can find out all of my updated tour information um, at travistritt.com. And uh, I encourage people to go there uh, and check that out and check it out often uh, because we are constantly adding more and more dates to our schedule, not only for 2021, but also into 2022 and beyond. So go check it out. Great. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference.